0: We're going to be looking at Philippians one, starting with verse twenty-seven, and on into chapter two. We're also going to look at a couple of verses in chapter four. A few years ago, I hurt my neck. I was lifting something heavy, and I just felt it, just felt it seize up. There's this little muscle right here in the back, and it felt like someone had just reached in and tied it in a knot all of a sudden. And so, for the rest of the day, I was kind of lurching around like Frankenstein's monster, just all stiff. And toward the the evening, as I knew I was about time to get ready for bed and i'm thinking i'm not going to be able to sleep with this pain in my neck so i got a hot pad and i put it on the i put some heat on that spot and instantly that felt really good and i thought i'll just sleep with this heat on my on my that pain in my neck and i'll be able to sleep well tonight and i remember as i drifted off to sleep one of the last things i thought was I, everything's gonna be better in the morning. I'm gonna feel so much better when I wake up. And I woke up and everything was not better and everything didn't feel good because overnight that, that little knot in my neck had turned into something that felt like it was the size of my fist and I couldn't, I couldn't move my head even an inch. We were supposed to take a vacation. We were on vacation as if that day we were supposed to head out of town and so I made an appointment with a chiropractor nearby, the earliest one I could get, and I went in to see her and told her my sad tale and she said, you put heat on it? That's the worst thing for a muscle injury. She said, if you've injured a muscle, there's inflammation there. And if you put heat on it, that's like pouring gasoline on a fire. You need to put ice on a muscle injury. And I said, ice, that sounds terrible. That, that, that would be painful. How can something that, that feels so bad be good for you? How can something that feels good be so bad for you? But... In the days since, and I've strained lots of muscles because, you know, 40, um, I, I've strained and, and pulled lots of muscles. True story. A couple of years ago, I, I, I tore a calf muscle playing tennis with two guys in their 80s. So there you go. They, they're walking around fine. I'm, I'm in agony. But So you, you put ice on it. I've learned you put ice on it. It hurts. It doesn't feel good, but it really does help. Swelling goes down. Healing comes sooner. You know, we're in this series about the journey to joy. And I hope you've seen that sometimes the journey to joy means doing things you don't necessarily want to do. The first week we talked about how investing in the lives of others brings us joy. That means forgetting about yourself and putting investment into somebody else. Last week we looked at, uh, at how being ready for the end of your life, how taking seriously the thing that, the thing that comes next after this life is over leads to joy. But today we're going to talk about something that's even more painful, something you don't want to do. And at the end of the service, we're going to have a time of prayer. In fact, we're starting today for the next seven weeks. We're going to have time to focus prayer in every worship service until the end of this series because we just want to make sure... We give you the opportunity as a people of God together to pray for your spiritual health and the spiritual health of our congregation. It's not that praying by yourself in your home or even while you're driving your car, taking a shower, that isn't effective. It is. It's perfectly effective to stand before the Lord alone. But there's something special that happens when God's people pray together. So at the end of this service, during the invitation time, we are going to offer invitation as we always do. But it's also going to be a chance for you to pray and and to bring something specific before the Lord. And I'm going to share that with you as this sermon goes on. So here's the thing. God wants us to be joyful people. Joy should be one of the defining marks of, of the people of God. That should be what we're known for. Not, that, not just that we're on, in church on Sunday mornings, not just that we don't use certain bad words, or we don't do certain bad deeds. People should say, those Christians are the happiest people I know. They're always joyful no matter what happens to them. But that's not the case, is it? There are plenty of Christians that aren't joyful, and that may, be, that may include you. One of the reasons why we're not joyful is that when someone hurts us, when we're wounded, we do just what I did with that pain in my neck. We do what feels good to us, not what brings healing. So when someone has hurt us, what do we do? We sit down in front of Netflix with a pint of Bluebell or maybe a half gallon if it's really a really bad pain. You know, you got to soothe it with some mint chocolate chip or whatever. Um, or we call up all our friends and we complain to them because we want as many people as possible to be mad at that person like we're mad at that person because there's strength in that. There's some kind of encouragement in that. Or or we sit and we just basically bask in our own self-pity because self-pity is very soothing. It makes us feel important. Or we drink something or we take something that dulls the pain. Or we go out and we buy something really expensive to get that little jolt of happiness that just lets us forget about our, our anger and pain for a while. But here's the thing. Here's what we're going to talk about today. Here's the sermon in a sentence. Joy comes when we have healthy relationships with all the people in our lives. Joy comes when we have healthy relationships with all the people in our lives. And that means sometimes doing what doesn't feel good. Sometimes doing what sounds awful is what actually brings you healing. Paul talks about this in in chapter 1, verse 27. Now remember, Paul is writing this letter as essentially a thank you note to the Philippian Christians. He's in jail. They've sent him a gift. He's so grateful, not because he needed anything, but just to know that they remembered him. And he writes them a thank you note, but because Paul is a pastor, he can't help talking to them like a pastor. And so he says, now I know this is going on in your church, so I need to address something that you're dealing with. He says in verse 27 of chapter 1, whatever happens... Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence I will know that you stand firm in one spirit striving together as one for the faith of the gospel notice He says conduct yourselves in a way worthy of the gospel. That's the title of the sermon because the world is watching the world watches how we treat one another And if we can't get along with one another, if we're bitter with one another, if we're ugly to one another, the world sees and says, well, I don't need what they have. They don't act any different than we do. He says in a couple of different ways, he wants us to be in one spirit, being of one mind. He wants us to be together, striving for the same things. Let me just testify for a minute. I am grateful that I serve in a church where the church staff, and the other leadership of the church that we love one another, there's, there's teamwork there, there's prayer for one another, there's love, there's enjoyment. We enjoy being together. Well, on, on the church staff, we make sure and get together at least once a quarter at somebody's house and so our families can can spend time together too. There's a teamwork, there's a unity in our staff that I love. And I've been here over two years. We've had our disagreements, we've had our moments of frustration, but we've managed to get through it. And let me tell you something. You might say, "Well, oh, you're ministers. Of course, you're going to get along." No, <laughs> I've been in churches where the leadership of the church was at odds, where there was rivalry, where there was bitterness, where there was pettiness, and that is miserable. Every meeting, every meeting you have is like going into dental surgery if your dentist happens to be a Nazi. Okay, it, it's it's like, Lord, can you can you? Let the power go out so we don't have to have this meeting because I don't want to sit with all that tension and all that bitterness. It is miserable. And that's what Paul is telling us. It shouldn't be that way. Be of one mind. Now, it makes you think, what is going on in the Philippian church that makes Paul say these words? Because... Paul usually addresses specific situations in his churches. If you read Corinthians, 1 and 2 Corinthians, there's all kinds of problems in that church that he's addressing. Here, this is the only specific issue he addresses in the Philippian church. And the specific issue is found in chapter 4, verses 2 through 3. In chapter 4, verses 2 through 3, he writes, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. So right here, he is addressing two women in the congregation. Now keep in mind, this is a letter not just a, a book of the Bible. This was an actual letter that went to an actual group of people. And so on a Sunday morning after this letter had arrived in Philippi, the pastor of that church stood up in that house where they met and he read these words out loud. And don't you know that when he got to this part of the letter that those two women sat up straight and they said, whoa, he's addressing us? And the people in the congregation all looked at them and said, he just addressed you? That, that was a little awkward. Euodia and syntyche Not exactly popular baby names for girls today, right? But these were the names of two women in the Philippian church. Two important women. Paul calls them these women who, who ha, I have contended with for the sake of the gospel. The contend with is an athletic term. It, it it has reference to wrestling or, or boxing or racing. He's saying, they've been my teammates in victory after victory over the forces of the darkness. These are women he respects. Women he holds in high esteem as servants of God, but he says, right now, you two are at odds with one another, and it's tearing the church apart, and it's dishonoring God. He says, I'm pleading with you, and I'm pleading with you. He, he calls them both out. He doesn't take sides. Agree with one another. Be of one mind. And then he says, and I'm talking to you too, O loyal companion. Now we don't know who he's addressing there. Some people say, well that may be the the Greek name of a person in the Philippian church. Stranger things have happened. Or he could be just speaking generally. He could be saying to everyone who hears my words, you and you and you and you, you're all my friends, why don't you get involved? Remember, Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. They will be called children of God. God wants us to get involved. When we see people we love at odds with one another, we're not supposed to just sit back and say, well, it's none of my business. We're supposed to get in the middle and, and bring reconciliation. So he's calling on people within the church to do that work. So let's go back to the beginning of chapter 2. So we are called upon to live worthy of the gospel. When we're at odds with someone, not just fellow Christians, but anybody, we're supposed to work to make things right now let's just be honest many of us right now and all of us at some point in our lives have someone who is our implacable enemy someone who grinds our gears and drives us crazy and makes us angry someone who when you see the side of them your stomach turns right you you walk into the room and they're there you're like oh i better leave you just can't stand to be in the presence of them in fact You don't like to hear someone else say good things about them. That makes you angry. So when someone else is bragging on that person you don't like, you feel like you have to drop in some little passive-aggressive comment to let them know, well, not everybody feels that way about this person. You know, everybody's fooled. He's got everybody fooled. But I know who he truly is. I know what he's really like. I wouldn't trust her as far as I can throw her. And I can't throw her very far. Have you seen her eat? This is... We have these people who we just are convinced, they're in the wrong and I'm in the right. And let's let's be honest about something. There's something in that, in a perverse way, that feels good. It makes you feel important to have an enemy. It makes you feel validated to be able to say to your friends, to anyone who's willing to listen, Let me tell you what she said about me. Let me tell you what he did to me. Let me tell you what that person is really like. It makes you feel important to be able to say, I will never forget. I will never trust. It feels good. But it's the worst thing for you. It's adding to the inflammation. It's blazing away the hatred inside your heart. Instead of healing, it's making it worse. And so he begins with chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in the Spirit and of one mind, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Now, there's so much there. We could take that apart and spend a lot of time there, but... He says, don't do anything out of selfish ambition. Everything should be motivated by unselfishness and not selfishness. He says, value others above yourselves. That's difficult. He says, look out for the interests of other people. He's not saying be nosy, be into everybody's business. He's saying the same thing he, he earlier said in Galatians 6.2 when he wrote, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. In other words, our relationship should be marked by empathy when you suffer i should suffer alongside you when you rejoice i should be genuinely happy for you not jealous about what you've experienced we should be together in everything but what i want to show you specifically is verse 2 when he says make my joy complete by being like-minded and then he closes out that verse by saying be of one spirit and one mind remember in Chapter, in verse 27, he'd said, I want you to be have the same mind. And when he talked to Euodia and Synechi in chapter 4, he says, come together, be of the same mind. He says the same thing over and over again. And you read in Paul's letters, he'll say that over and over again. Be of one mind in the Holy Spirit. Does that mean that Paul wants us to think alike on all things, that we have to be these, these clones who are just alike, who have the same preferences, that we have to listen to the same music and wear the same clothes and, and enjoy the same kinds of food, and, and there, there can't be any uniformity. In other words, as this little third-grade girl asked me this week when I was sharing the gospel in BBS, she raised her hand, and I, I talked about how Christ comes into you, and he remakes you, he makes you a new person, and she said, does that mean I can't be myself anymore? I said, man, what a great question. This is a child that's really grappling with the gospel. I said, no, you absolutely are still you. You're still going to have your same voice and your same look and your same uh, things that you enjoy. It's just that Jesus is going to make you into the best version of yourself, the person he created you to be. So when Paul writes and says, be of the same mind, he's not saying that you and I have to agree on everything. You don't have to root for the same teams I root for. You're free to be wrong, okay? Um... you get that? So what he means is revealed in verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So this is how we have the same mind. We're we're to have the same attitude as Jesus. And then he launches into one of the most beautiful writings in all of human history. Verses 6 through 11 are actually written in verse form. So it's Poetry. So one of two things happened. is Paul's writing this letter from his prison cell, either he suddenly just burst into poetry, which is possible. Paul was a highly educated and articulate man. Or what's more likely is that Paul is quoting an ancient hymn. That's what most scholars believe. That just like you'll hear preachers sometimes quote from uh, Amazing Grace or uh, How Great Thou Art or It Is Well With My Soul or I Can Only Imagine or any song you want to name, that's what Paul does here. So these verses, 6-11, through reveal this is something the early Christians used to sing together. And it's a song about Jesus. And it's powerful. I want you to read it with me. And then we'll get down to what is Paul telling us about how to heal our relationships. Verse 6, "...who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage." So there's so much there. I could preach not just on every verse. I could preach on every phrase. We could be in those verses from now until Christmas, but that's not the plan. What I just want to show you, I'm not going to be able to do justice to this this morning. I just want to show you three things from this passage. Three things that if we were to be like Jesus in these three ways, if we were to strive to be like Jesus in these three ways, we would have healthy relationships, and those healthy relationships would bring us joy. So the first thing is forget about yourself. Forget about yourself. When I was 12, I was in Little League. I played for the Giants. Uh, The Giants red with white stripes. I remember we we, we were the best team in the league, at least we thought we were. One day before a game, our our coaches were out of the dugout. I'm not sure why, and maybe they ran out of snuff or something. But um, so we were we were all by ourselves in the dugout just a few minutes before the game started, and I got into a fight in those few minutes. So there was a kid on my team who was mad because I was starting at second base instead of him, and he was letting everyone know how wrong he thought that was how sorry he thought I was how he was the better second baseman and he he just he was letting it letting it fly and he was I'm not going to tell you the name he called me that that pushed me over the edge not because it was vulgar but because it impugned my manhood you know and I was 12 years old and I my voice hadn't changed yet and I had peach fuzz on my legs but I I wanted to show him I was a man so I walked over and I slugged him And he stood up, and we swung at each other for a while, didn't make any contact at all. It was not exactly the thriller in Manila, if you know what I mean. But because I connected on the only punch that actually landed, I was declared the winner. Um, And we look back, I look back at that and laugh. Because that's how kids are, right? You call a kid a a hurtful name, and and a child either... Bursts into tears or flies into violence. Those are, those are your two options when you're little and someone hurts your feelings. And we as adults, you know, kind of cluck our tongues over them and say, no, listen, Jeff, come on. It doesn't matter what he calls you. None of that's true. You just rise above all that. You don't need to respond to him. If you just ignore it, he'll leave you alone. That's what I tell my kids. That's not the way I acted back then. How many of us act that way today, though, as adults? We may not fly into violence, although may some of you may. We may not burst into tears, although sometimes you might. But don't we don't we hold those things inside when someone says hurtful about us so, so, something hurtful about us, don't we don't we store those things up in our hearts? Keep a good record of that? Don't we let that burn us up inside? She can't talk to me that way. He can't say those things about me. I'll show him. Compare that to Jesus. In those verses we just read in verse 6, it says Jesus was in very nature God. Jesus was God in human flesh. This parallels what it says in John 1. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It parallels what Colossians 1.17 says, that all things were made through Jesus, and in Him all things hold together. In other words, if Jesus took His hand off the pedal, the whole world would fall apart. He's holding it all together. He's got the whole world in His hands. And yet when He came down here on earth, He didn't consider His status, His divine status, to be something to be taken advantage of. He never once said, you can't talk to me that way. He never once said, if you knew who you were talking to, you'd be a whole lot more humble right now. When people called him demon-possessed and a traitor to his people and called him a friend of tax collectors and sinners and a drunkard and a glutton and called him the devil himself. Jesus forgot about himself. In fact, it says... In verse 7, he made himself nothing. The actual Greek term is he emptied himself. Emptied himself. It doesn't mean he got rid of his divinity or ceased to become divine. He was still fully God. He didn't lose his power, although it's clear from the Gospels that he limited himself in some ways. It means he forfeited his privileges of divinity. This is someone who had existed for all of eternity and since before time began, he'd been worshipped by legions of angels. He'd dwelt in unapproachable light. He'd never had contact with anything sinful. And now here he is in this awful world and he does not strike back. And that's our calling too, to forget about ourselves. Some of us are holding on to slights, holding on to insults. that We needed to let go of. We need to empty ourselves of all of that, like Jesus did. Secondly, we learn from him, be a servant. In verse 7, it says Jesus took on the nature of a servant. You know, all through the gospels, when Jesus is trying to teach his disciples, the lesson he tried to teach them more often than anything else is if you come in last, you'll actually be first. If you put others ahead of yourself, you'll find true greatness. Don't lord your position over others instead. Put them ahead of yourself. Be the servant of all. Don't insist that they call you rabbi or doctor or teacher, but instead just be an ordinary person. Love people as they are. And God, if you're humble, God will exalt you. If you're prideful, God will bring you low. He taught them that lesson over and over again, and they never quite got it. So on the night before he died, as he's getting ready to serve them the Last Supper, what does he do? He strips to the waist like a slave. He gets down on his knees with a basin of water and a towel and he washes their feet. Now, we have a hard time understanding how significant that was because I don't think many of us want someone to touch our feet unless it's a trained person. And even I, I've never had a pedicure and I'm not interested. I mean, that's that's not something we want. But in that culture where everyone walked everywhere and the roads were unpaved and you wore sandals To have clean feet was something to be desired, right? And for somebody to say, let me clean your feet for you was an act of incredible kindness. But it was such a demeaning act that no one would actually offer to do it for someone else. Maybe a mom for her little child and and definitely a wealthy person just to show off might might ask his lowliest slave to wash the feet of his guests as if to say, look how much power I have that I can command such a demeaning act. Jesus took on the role of that demeaned slave. And that's why his disciples recoiled when he first did it. Peter says, hey, you can't wash my feet, Lord. That's that's not right. But I want you to think about this. Jesus washed the feet of all 12 disciples. All 12. That means he washed Judas' feet. And Jesus knew what Judas was about to do. He knew that in just a few hours, Judas was going to sell... Jesus to the highest bidder. And yet he did this incredible act of kindness for the worst enemy he would ever have. Jesus was a servant. You know, it said that um, this may be apocryphal, but it said that toward the end of the civil war, uh, Lincoln was meeting with members of his own party and there were radical Republicans who, who really wanted severe reparations against the South. They wanted they wanted the leaders of the of the Confederacy to be hung. They wanted people to go to jail. They wanted uh, to confiscate property and give it to the freed slaves. They wanted punishment upon the South for us causing the Civil War. And Lincoln said, Lincoln said, Do I not defeat my enemy when I make him my friend? Let me ask you something. Have you ever actually tried that strategy? To defeat your enemies by making them your friends? Have you ever said I'm going to start treating him the way I wish he treated me. I'm going to start talking about her the way I wish she talked about me. I'm actually going to begin praying for him, praying for good things to happen to him. Even though I, I still have this hurt in my heart, I'm going to do what feels bad because that's actually going to reveal healing. And when people come to me and they want to talk bad about my enemy and I'm, they want me to join in, I'm going to say, eh, that's, that's in the past. I want good things for them now. And I'm not going to get frustrated and throw my hands up just because they don't respond in kind. I'm going to keep treating them the way I wish they treated me because that's what's going to bring healing. Have you ever actually tried that strategy? Because that's exactly what Jesus did. He washed the feet of his enemy. And then third, we learn from Jesus that pain brings gain. It says in verse 8 that he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, why does it say even death on a cross? Because the cross was the worst possible way to die. Not only was it intensely, excruciatingly painful, by the way, the word excruciating comes from the word crucifixion, did you know that? Not only was it the worst pain you can imagine, but it was socially demeaning. You were stripped of all your dignity. This was the way you died when society wanted to say, you're the worst of the worst. Did you know that a Roman citizen, it was illegal for a Roman citizen to be crucified? because Rome did not want to inflict that on its own citizens no matter what they'd done. This was a a punishment for slaves, for terrorists, for the worst of the worst. Get this. Jesus throughout His life could have died many times, but chose not to. He could have been stoned to death. He could have been thrown off a cliff in His own hometown. He could have died in a storm on the sea. Each time He said, I'm not going to die now. I refuse to die now. This is not my time. Jesus was in charge of His own life. He said, no one's going to take my life away from me. I lay it down on my own. And yet he chose to die in this way. If I knew I had to die, and I was the the master of how that happened, I would make it as painless as possible. I would make it as dignified as possible. Jesus did the opposite. Because he knew what hurts the most is going to bring the most healing. What hurts me the most is going to bring the most people to me. This is what it took to bring salvation. Hebrews 12.2 says, For the joy set before him he endured the cross, despising the shame. For the joy set before him. That doesn't mean Jesus enjoyed being on the cross. Far from it. But he knew on the other side of this agony is joy. You know what the joy on the other side of the agony was? You. Jesus knew, if I do this, if I go to this cross, then you will be saved. You'll have the opportunity to spend eternity with me. And that's how much you mean to him. And so let me say this, in the midst of all this good news, if you're in conflict with someone right now, and many of you probably are, and it's in a room this size, many, maybe most of you have somebody that you are just in conflict with right now. Let's be honest. You probably know what you would have to do to make things right. You probably know, if I did this, it would make things at least a lot better. You haven't been willing to up till now, because it's, the cost is too high. The pain would be too great. It would mean giving them a satisfaction you don't want them to have. It would mean letting go of some of the satisfaction you feel of feeling like, I'm right and they're wrong. You know what you need to do, most of them. You just haven't done it yet, because the pain is too great. When Jesus was calling his disciples, he said, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. We don't die for our sins anymore, but we still go to the cross with Jesus. We still lay down our lives. We still do things sometimes that feel like death. When is the last time, if you're a servant of Christ, when is the last time you did something in obedience to Jesus that actually hurt? When was the last time you did something that was so painful and so daunting that everything within your flesh cried out, no, I'm not going to do it, but you did it anyway because you knew that's what was required. See, if you're a servant of Christ, that should happen periodically. If it hasn't happened in a long time or you can't remember the last time it happened, maybe you haven't been following Jesus yet. Maybe you haven't been following Him lately. Maybe there's a specific area of your life where you're just refusing to submit That's that one person you don't want to forgive, that one person you don't want to take those steps of reconciliation with. See, in this ancient hymn, the best part is the last when it says that someday every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The interesting thing about that statement is long years before, long years before this was written, Jesus, before He'd ever started His ministry, He went into the desert. He didn't eat or drink for 40 days. The devil was there in the desert, tempting him, trying to get him to sin. If Jesus had sinned even one time, he couldn't be our savior because he would have been dying for his sins and not ours. Our salvation rode on that moment. One of the temptations that the devil threw before Jesus was this. He said, if you'll bow down before me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Now, according to scripture, the devil doesn't rule the kingdoms of the world, but he influences. I think what the devil was saying was, listen, all the time, I'm working on kings and generals and presidents and prime ministers, and my motivation is I'm trying to get them to be as selfish as possible, to govern only in their own self-interest and not to care about their people and to oppress those they can to gain more power for themselves. But, but if you'll just bow down to me, I'll change my tactic, and I'll work to, to influence them toward you so that they'll, they'll come to worship you. They'll come to make you king. Think about what that meant for Jesus. If he would have said yes, he could have had the kingdom without a cross. He could have had a crown without a cross. He could have ruled the world without shedding blood, without shedding a tear, gain without pain. But he chose not to. See, I know this was the temptation because later on when Jesus is telling his disciples what's going to happen and I'm going to be arrested and crucified, his his friend Peter says, Lord, I'm not going to let that happen. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. That was just about the most hurtful thing Jesus could possibly say, but he wasn't trying to hurt Peter's feelings. He was being accurate. Peter, you're saying to me the same thing the devil said to me three years earlier. Don't go to the cross. See, it would have felt good for Jesus to have Adoration without pain. It would have felt good to say yes to the devil's request that day. But he chose the hard road. He chose what didn't feel good because he knew that's where the real healing was. Because if Jesus would have said yes, we would have had a king, a righteous, loving, gracious king, but we still would have been lost because we wouldn't have a Savior. Because what's required is salvation through grace, by the blood of Christ. He did the hard thing so that we could be healed, so that we could be His. God is calling on some of us here in this morning to do the hard thing, and I don't know what that is. Holy Spirit is in charge, not me. Right now, we're going to bow our heads and close our eyes, and we're going to get ready for a time of prayer. So, would you do that? Almighty God, we thank you for sending Jesus our Savior. We thank you for the way He lived. And for the way he died. And I pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts this morning and show us what our responsibility is in living worthy of the gospel. For people here this morning who are in conflict with others, give them wisdom and courage to do what is right, to know what is right to do and to take those steps. Lord, for those here this morning who've done all they can to bring reconciliation and it hasn't happened yet, Lord, teach them patience. Help them, Lord, to keep on treating that person with kindness and to trust in you. Lord, for those of us who need to act as peacemakers and to get involved in the conflicts of others, I pray that you would show us how, give us courage and wisdom. Lord, for this church, we're so grateful for the unity in this body of believers. I pray that you would not only preserve it, but increase it. Increase our love for one another as we increase our love for you. Lord, it's to the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our King, we pray. Amen.